What's going on, family? This is your boy DJ Preach, the founder of the Life Show Radio. And I see that you're doing great things right now by keeping it locked here on the MTMV Sports Podcast. Yeah, I better be talking about the Carolina Panthers. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Know Your Personnel Podcast. We are on all major podcast apps. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please remember to leave us a rating. Download and share this episode with a friend so we can continue to grow the game. I'm very excited for our next guest. Let's jump in. All right, joining us here today, I have a special guest. I have Todd Dixon, uh, head coach of Santiago Canyon Community College. Uh, coach Dixon uh, spent 21 years uh, as a high school coach at El Toro High School with the 449 and 158 win-loss record. At El Toro, he's a three-time, his teams were three-time CIF finalists, and he was three-time Orange County, uh, excuse me, he was 2013 Orange County Coach of the Year. Uh, currently, he's at Santiago uh, Canyon Community College, where his team just finished uh, 26 and two, number one in the state, uh, was the favorite to win the whole thing. But unfortunately, his season got cut short with the uh, excuse me with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Coach Dixon, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, not to correct you right away, but we're actually 28 and two. Oh, 28 and two. Did I look at that wrong? Gosh. Okay. okay. Thank you. No, that's good. We need to know that 28 and two. I, pre- I, I apologize for that. I do all my homework and then I guess I wrote the thing down wrong. So 28 and two, number one in the state, uh, primed to win the whole thing. And it just was cut short, unfortunately. Um, why don't we start here, coach, with your playing experience, because you have a really good story of, of how you became a, even a player and then a coach and all the, uh, all the accomplishments that you've had there. You started high school um, at Ocean View, but you went there. Talk to me about why you went to Ocean View High School. So I actually grew up in Fountain Valley, which is right next to Huntington Beach where Ocean View is located. And my brother and my sister actually went to Fountain Valley. And uh, going like eighth grade year, I was playing basketball, kind of grew up playing basketball. My dad taught me everything I know and just did all that. And then, uh, Ocean View was a relatively new school. I think they were only like three or four years old. And mm-hmm. they had something called variable credit. So I was a pretty good student. This variable credit meant you could work at your own pace. And my parents thought that might be a good idea. Um, the size of Ocean View, they had about 2,000 students. And Fountain Valley at the time had about 4,000 students. Wow. So they thought, you know what? Let's go up an academic experience, a smaller campus. It might be kind of fun. So we talked about it decided that, you know, I'd go to Ocean View. I'd like to say I was like heavily recruited for basketball, but <laughs> being a four eleven freshman, that really wasn't the case. So, I did hear uh, you were you were four foot eleven going into high school. Certainly not uh, not looked at as a, as a potential basketball star. Uh, no, definitely not. Um, but you know, we I went to their their they had Coach Harris was kind of Jim Harris um, is kind of like the kind of one of the founding fathers of Orange County basketball because he kind of started like summer camps and started running summer leagues. He got involved in the, you know, the club scene a little bit early on. So um, I remember going as a freshman to the summer camp and just loving it. And I was playing baseball, basketball, football all the time. But when I get, when I went to that summer camp, I was like, okay, I want to play basketball. So I kind of gave up trying to do any of the other sports. Um, some people said I should have like tried to stick with golf or baseball because it might have went farther. But basketball, I always enjoyed, so that was something that I, I really liked to do. So I stuck with that. Um, yeah, being four eleven has kind of always been one thing that I, I need to prove myself. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of doubters out there when you're a little guy. And um, I was just the, the ultimate late bloomer, even by 
well, even my, my career, like as far as like I played freshman on the, you know, I was a freshman on the freshman team, sophomore on the sophomore team, junior on the JV team, mm-hmm. had some younger guys kind of moving up. And then yeah. even my senior year being on the varsity, I was probably ninth or 10th man, I would oh. say. So I was not somebody that was on the, you know, the, the recruiting world or anything like that going into college. Now, you guys had, to be fair, Ocean View and Coach Harris had some really good teams. So 9 and 10 on a good Ocean View team uh, might be different than maybe going to a different school or one maybe not as good as a basketball team. So you were still probably pretty good, uh, but just played some pretty good players above you. Is that right? Yeah, and we were actually kind of going through a rebuilding mode with some younger guys. So um, Ricky Butler, who just mm-hmm. actually recently passed away, um, was a freshman on that varsity team. There was a kid named Tony Panzica who was a sophomore on that varsity team. And then a couple of juniors as well. So our starting lineup, I think, only had one or two seniors in it. Um, so some of us, I don't, I don't know if I would say I was, you know, a victim of any of, of that kind of stuff, but it was just – um being a little bit smaller even then my senior year I was probably five seven or five eight um so I, I kind of hit a growth spurt right after high school as well so you were not heavy certainly heavily recruited but you did play college basketball and ended up being a uh, division two all-american correct uh NAI NAI all-american uh, explain how that happened how you go from nine to ten on the bench to an NAI all-american talk about your college playing so out of high school, I didn't think I could play college basketball at all. I, I mean, I really enjoyed basketball and played it a lot, obviously. Went down to Murdy Park in Huntington Beach and played at Miles Square Park, played there, like just played wherever I could. And I had a buddy of mine um, that was playing at uh, Claremont McKenna, which was a Division three school. And he was on what they called their JV team. Mm-hmm. So, and I knew I was better than he was on the same varsity team with me at Ocean And I knew, well, I thought I was better than him, at least um, – and he, I saw a couple of his games and he was playing. I'm like, gosh, even if it's just like organized basketball, actually playing with the coach and referees yeah. and all that, I should try something like that. So talk, talk to my parents. My dad had a little connection with Bill Reynolds, who was the coach at Southern California College, now known as Vanguard University. Mm-hmm. And uh, just thought, you know what? Give him a call, see what, see what comes out of it. So I actually made two phone calls. I called Bill Reynolds at, at SCC, Southern California College. Mike messed that one up a few times with Santiago Canyon College being the mm-hmm. same. Um, but I also called a uh, coach by the name of Dave Wild, and at the time it was called Christ College, which is now Concordia University in Irvine. Okay. Um, and Bill Reynolds was, called me back. Um, Dave Wild never called me back. So Bill Reynolds invited me to go down in the springtime to play some pickup games with their team. So I went down there and uh, had a great time. And they actually had a JV team as well. And he said, you know what, if you want to come, I can definitely have you on the JV team. And you could, I'll actually pay for your books. It was like 200 bucks at the time or something like mm-hmm. that. I thought that was the greatest thing ever that I was going to get 200 bucks. Um, but I do remember going down to those games and thinking, oh my gosh, these guys are so big, so fast. I don't know how I'll ever compete, but having that opportunity to be on the JV team, I was like, oh, I'll I'll go for it. That sounds like a lot of fun. Being at a small Christian environment also, also is something that um, intrigued me and I really liked. Um, the thing is, if Dave Wilde would have called me back, I probably would have went to Concordia or Christ College at the time because of their facility was really nice. I mean, the same yeah. facility they have now. Um, and they weren't very good, which I know that sounds bad, but I know I probably could have competed on their varsity right away, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. But anyways, it worked out because then, um, so that first year at, uh, at SCC, I – 
played on that JV team, first, you know, and then had a good time, started, did all that, and then played actually at the home games. I would suit up for the home games with, like, what they would call the varsity team. So the next year, going into my sophomore year, basketball-wise, um, which would have been my junior year, like third year of college, but kind of like a redshirt year that first year. Oh, I went to Cal State Fullerton. I said backtrack. I went to Cal State Fullerton as a, as a freshman to study accounting, but that wasn't something I wanted to do. So anyways, um, my sophomore year, Coach Reynolds came to me before the season and said, you know, we're not going to have a JV team anymore. We're only going to have one team. Um, it looks like you're probably 13th man out of 12. <laughs> that, yeah, I went, okay, so 13th man out of 12. Once again, I'm going back to my 411 years where I got to prove myself. So um, I thought, okay, I'm really going to have to prove myself and kind of, you know, do what I can on the court. So uh, they had a fifth year starting, uh, fifth year senior starting point guard. And I, I kept competing against them in practice, thinking, you know what, I think I'm better than them. And uh, some of my buddies on the team thought, you know what, just go out there, prove yourself, and good things will happen. So um, fall training camp came around. I played well, did well. I ended up making the team. I was probably going into the season, maybe like, well, I was the backup point guard, basically going into the season, probably about four or five games in, um, we were playing at Loyola Marymount, which was divisional, mm-hmm. and it was the year. We played them twice, so I can talk about the second time we played them. The first time they did, the first time we played them, I think Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers were they, I think they just transferred from USC and they were sitting out, but they were still good with like Jeff Fryer, the shooter. They, they had a couple of guys that were really good and they were playing the Paul Westhead run and gun style. Mm-hmm. So I came in as the backup point guard, but ended up playing more minutes than the starter. And I had nine assists, one turnover. And I think I only scored like four or five points, but mm-hmm. it kind of solidified my spot as a starter. So then from that point forward, I started, um, started the rest of that year. And then junior year, obviously started. I was an academic All-American my junior and senior year. And then also an honorable mention All-American NAIA for my senior year. Um, just had some, obviously, great times and fond memories of, of those days. So it's, it's a good story to hear 4'11 freshman. Then you play freshman, sophomore, JV, end of the bench on the varsity. And then JV team in college. And then last guy on the bench, and then work your way up to uh, to All American, NAIA All American. You share the court with, uh, you share a court at least for one night with uh, Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball, and play with them. Uh, it really says a lot about you know your perseverance and not giving up. And I think that's a lesson you probably have shared with many kids that you've coached and taught many people, uh, because a lot of people I could see would just say, eh, you know, it's not for me. I, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to play. I'm not going to get this. Uh, it's not worth it for me. So. You showed a lot there. Now, let's go back to the coaches uh, that you played for because you played by two legendary coaches there, Coach Harris and also Coach Reynolds. What first did you learn from Coach Harris um, that helped you along the way and that you may even use now? Uh, I think with Coach Harris, he always had, and and Bill Reynolds also, but they had like a family environment. And I think Mm -hmm. that was something that really is intriguing to be part of and it's fun to be part of. so you know you have each other's backs and you can support each other. So there's just that family environment. So I think both of them are very similar with that. Um, as far as Coach Harris, like basketball-wise, I would say his defensive philosophy, that was kind of like the first – I mean, my dad coached me all through eighth grade and then going into high school. So, like, I had obviously four different coaches. But he mm-hmm. kind of built it where the freshman team was doing some of the same things, especially defensively. Um, 
as the varsity team. So I would say I've learned a lot of the defensive foundations. I mean, even think like shell drill and help side defense and, mm-hmm. you know, whether his philosophy is force baseline or force middle, all that kind of stuff. So ball pressure. So I learned a lot about the defensive end. Um, he kind of had the philosophy at the time that you wanted to try to keep the ball on one side of the court. Um, one of his assistants, Randy Karcher, who's a missionary now in Papua New Guinea, um, he always, uh, he was really big on just don't let the ball ever get reversed. That way you always have your help side, you know where it's open. Um, and they did a really good job. If you look back at the Ocean View teams defensively, when Jim was the coach, they were really, really good. So I think part of that was something that I learned. I think just the organization of how you run and manage. And he had a second freshman team also. So he had like five teams. So how, you, how do you manage, you know, five different teams, just seeing all that? I mean, we would grow up, you know, my senior year at Ocean View, it's like the summer I was there all day refereeing, refereeing summer, summer league games for the other levels and just hanging out. And that was just something that you always did. So it became part of your life. It wasn't just an activity that you did. It actually became part of your life. And I just think, I think his commitment to the game kind of showed this is how you become a successful coach. And Coach Reynolds, you know, you played for him. Now you weren't a 14-year-old, but you were a, a man, a young man at least. And what did you learn, you know, playing from him philosophy-wise or, you know, lessons, things like that? Yeah. And he, he even, I mean, the family atmosphere, once again, is, was very important with him. And it's funny because my age was kind of like the age, like Jim Harris, Harris's daughter, Kim Harris, was my age. And so we hung out a lot with the, and the Harris family, you know, they're like four or five kids and we hung out a lot. And then with Bill Reynolds, he also had daughters that were my age, Tracy and Tina Reynolds that were my age. So I was always around their families because our friendships were with their kids. So that was kind of fun. Um, but Bill kind of had that same family environment. You, you have each other's back, you work together, you know, things go wrong. You, you, you have players with high character that if things do go wrong, they're going to be recover and there's not going to be as many issues. And then obviously the highs are much better than, you know, you're not going to have as many lows as you would with um, guys that might not have that same high character. Um, I would say the basketball part with, with coach Reynolds was more of the offensive end. He was very free flowing and understood tempo of the game and trying to attack before the defense gets set. So um, we were always pushing the ball. We picked up, full court man, um, did a lot of run and jump. And then offensively, we were constantly in transition. So like, like when we played, you know, Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball in that my junior year is when we played and when those two guys played and they, they loved us, lived up playing us because we were averaging close to hundred, but they were averaging about 120. Yeah. I think the final score was like LMU, like 141 and SCC 112 or something like that. So it was one of those like crazy games. Um, one of my claims to fame is I, I or claim to fame, I guess, is I scored. I think I was the third leading scorer in the game. I think Bo Kimball had like 31. I think Gathers had like 38, but I had 29. So I, I was the third leading scorer in that game. That was kind of funny. But um, yeah, so I think just learning from Bill, just the same thing, share the ball, have that same family environment. I think that's all kind of developed into my philosophy. Um, so after after your playing career was done, uh, you finished at SCC. And then you decided to get into coaching. Um, talk about, you know, what, what led you to get into coaching and how you first started and, and, uh, in high school and, and how that all came about. Yeah, so this will, I'll go back a little bit to my college days because, as I mentioned, when I first went to Cal State Fullerton, I thought I was going to be an accountant. So when I transferred to Southern California College, I still was a business major. 
And I remember sitting in, this is kind of one of those aha moments that you have in life right, that I always tell kids to try to have. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in my accounting class and I'm completely bored. And I'm just thinking, I do not want to do this the rest of my life. So I had a little self-talk and I said, okay, so what do I like to do? I like to play basketball. I go, well, am I going to be an NBA player? I was, I was wise enough at the time to think I probably wasn't going to be an NBA player. You know, when I was a 4'11 freshman, I thought I was going to be an NBA player. But by the time I was a 5'11 junior in college, I realized it. <laughs> um, so I thought, okay, so I'm not going to um, play basketball. But, I, you know, being from the Jim Harris Foundation and playing there and being with Bill, like, you know, coaching would be something um, that would be a lot of fun. Uh, my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, is Roger Holmes, who was a longtime coach at Fountain Valley High School, Marina High School. So he's been around. So um, he was coaching at Santa Margarita High School at the time um, as an assistant coach. So Santa Margarita High School. So I, my junior year was in college. Santa Margarita High School just opened up. Mm-hmm. And a, um, a guy named Rich Schaff, who was a longtime coach at Modern Day and a longtime athletic director at Santa Margarita High School, he was also my freshman coach at Ocean View. So now there's all these little connections. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, I'm in that class. And I'm thinking, okay, I can coach basketball. So if I want to coach basketball, I'm not going to be able to be an accountant major. What I'm going to have to teach, you know? So I thought, all right, I, I'm, I like math. So let's um, become a math major so I could change my major to math so I could teach high school math and then get into coaching. And I talked it over with Roger and, and Rich off. And they said, you know what? When you graduate, you can probably get a job at Santa Margarita High School because it would be a brand new, you know, brand new job, you know, Mm-hmm. school opening brand new opportunity for you so the very next day I actually went into the um, like the admissions office at SEC and said you know what I want to change my major and so I changed it so I could become a math teacher at the high school level so then you got into so your first coaching stint was at Santa Margarita correct correct yes so what was the difference there's always a, a, a huge learning curve or I mean not always but many times there's a huge learning curve between going from a player to being a coach so what was that like now, that transition from player to coach? Yeah, so my first job um, was to coach the freshman team at Santa Margarita High School. And um, I remember the first game not having control. Mm-hmm. And that was, it took years to get over that, actually. I, I just, I mean, as a point guard in college, I always had control. Like if I made a mistake, I knew I was going to make up for it pretty quick. And if something wasn't going well, I could control how the things were going to happen going forward in the game. So. As a player, you feel, especially being a point guard, you feel you have a lot of control and impact on the game. And then settling as a coach during the games, you really don't have that big of an impact. Yes, you get a sub guys and call plays. And um, I think as you grow older, you might be able to impact it a little bit more. Um, but it's still, the, it's a player's game and players are going to make the shots and run the plays. And, you know, hopefully you've prepared them the right way. But I would say the biggest adjustment for me was you know, having that control of the game and relying more on the players to make the plays. So you spent, you were at Santa Margarita and then how long were you there? So I was there for seven years. So my kind of the first seven years, um, here's how, here's how it kind of worked out. So I was hired obviously as a math teacher. My first year I, I was the freshman coach. I think my next year, Roger Holmes actually took over the program from Rich Schaff and Rich just became the AD. And so I was Roger's assistant for a couple of years. And then I was a JV coach. So I did a little bit of JV varsity. So I did that for five years while I was still teaching there. And then Bill Reynolds from um, Southern California College, actually, I stayed in touch with him, but he 
asked me to be his assistant back at the college. So I actually did that for two years. So my last two years at Santa Margarita, I was, I left coaching there, but I was coaching at Southern California College. So I was an assistant college coach doing that. So that's kind of those first seven years. So after that, you ended up taking the job at El Toro. Um, talk about that interview process and how that worked from going from a, a JV coach, freshman coach, slash college coach a little bit for seven years to now applying for a head coaching job at a public high school. Yeah. So after my first five years, you know, coaching with Rich Shop and then Roger Holmes, and then actually Roger left Santa Margarita and then Jerry DeBusk got hired. And I worked with him for a year as his assistant. Might've been two years. Um, but then I was, I was actually starting to apply because I wanted to be a head coach. Oh, and I know what happened. Um, when Roger left, I wanted the job, but I was 26 or something like that. And I, I wanted the job. And so I never got an interview, which kind of irritated me because in the springtime, I was organizing the schedule, running the camps, running the, like I was doing everything the because they had no coach yeah. and they were going through the interview process. And I understand, I mean, I was young, but I thought I at least deserved an interview. So at that, once when that happened, I was still, you know, going to teach there and coach there. And I was with Jerry for, for a few years. Um, and, but I also wanted to be a head coach somewhere. So I, I applied at least in the Yale high school when that opened up. Um, didn't get an interview for that, which once again, I'm that 411 freshman that needs to prove himself. Um, I remember applying at Foothill High School and got to be a finalist there. I actually thought that was, I was getting that job. I felt real confident about the interview. And uh, Bob Tate, who's a longtime shooting coach, you might know Bob Tate. Um, he was a shooting coach for the Lakers for a while, and he coached it. I think he was an assistant at Cal State Fullerton. So he's, he's been a while around, but he got the job. And so I am actually applied at El Toro High School two years before I got the job. Um, and Dave Shoemaker, who we both know, a good mm -hmm. friend of ours, um, got the job when I didn't get the job. Once again, I'm 25, 26, trying to apply for these varsity jobs, and it wasn't. It's just, I guess my timing wasn't right, but it motivated me. I mean, I remember keeping the letter I got from Foothill saying, sorry, but you know, we went with somebody else. So I've always been motivated by having to prove myself and prove people wrong. So um, El Toro opened up kind of like after I was the assistant at um, SEC for those two years. And I liked being the assistant for Bill, but at the time I didn't really like the recruiting. And at the NAI level, there's really no rules as far as when you can talk to kids and all that. And I was young. And so it was hard for me to really you know, talk with some of these other kids and try to recruit them. So um, I enjoyed my time, but the recruiting wasn't something I thought I would really get into. So then the El Toro job opened up again. And this time I'm like 29 years old. Um, and so I decide, you know what, let's, let's give this another try. So I applied for that job and I kind of knew, I don't know, I could just get a feeling from the interviews that I was going to get it. I think they liked the fact that I um, had developed a little bit more as a coach and been at the college level. And so just kind of went through that interview process and ended up getting the job when I was 29 years old. That, you know, the mid to late 20s is kind of a no man's land for coaches because, you know, you, you've got a lot of experience coming out of college and, you know, sometimes, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, but you're still in the eyes of many people and maybe rightfully so too young to take on a, 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 a good program, a good, at least basketball program. And so I know a lot of coaches, myself and obviously you included, you know, who tried to get jobs at that age and, and felt that we were ready and may have been ready, but just that, that mid to late twenties is, is a tough area. So I would think that if I were advising a coach, you know, 
go for it, but don't be disappointed. You know, more towards your early 30s is probably when a good young head coach would be hired. And it looks like you had the same example. Yeah, I think that's kind of it. I mean, one of the things is like, and I think which administrators might be worried about is like being able to install the discipline and you're so close in age that will you be able to handle an 18 year old senior that talks back to you or doesn't do what you want to do that. So I, I can, I can see that, but I always think back and go, man, what happened? So I would have got that job at least on the gal or at Foothill, like, and had that long career. So it is rare that you get a job when you're really young and you kind of, I mean, it teaches you to pay the dues and I, yeah. I think that's important, valuable lesson to, to and, it's, and being able to learn. Like I learned obviously from, Jim at Ocean View, and then Roger and Rich Schaff and Bill Reynolds, and then I worked with Jerry DeBus. Like I learned, I learned a lot from him as well. Yeah, uh, learning how to interview, I think, is a great skill, and it's tough to learn unless you go through it. It's one of those things that you know you have to go through, and no two interviews are the same. And and so having that experience of going through several interviews before you finally got the job probably helped you as well. I would say, and I know that when I interviewed for jobs, and you leave there and you think you did a good job, and then you see yourself there and you think you're going to be there and you start to, you know, put things together in your head and it kind of is a bit heartbreaking when you don't get it. But uh, again, another star, another, uh, you know, showing a perseverance, you know, for you, which seems to be kind of a foundation of, of you growing up. So now you're the head coach at El Toro. Um, Talk about how you built, uh, you know, culture. Well, no, first this, you know, there's a big difference. Just we talked about the difference between a player and a coach. And there's a big difference between that assistant coach and the head coach. So talk to me about, you know, that transition moving, you know, they say you move six inches from one chair to the other, but it's like six miles in, in, in the learning curve. Talk about that learning curve from being an assistant to a head coach. Yeah. I, I think as an assistant coach, you're kind of considered a player's coach. I think it's, mm-hmm. I hate to say this because I've had great assistant coaches, but I, I'd hate to say that it's an easy job, but it's actually, I don't say easy. It's kind of the fun part of the job because you really, don't have to worry about the discipline, the organization, you know, the game yeah. plan. You just get a coach and you get to have that experience with the players. So whether it's at the high school or the college level, you get to know the players sometimes better even than the head coach. So mm-hmm. I, I always, the assistant coaching job is, is, is kind of a fun, you know, job to be part of. And then moving into the head coaching role, you still have those experiences, but you also add on the, the finances of fundraising, you know, at the high school level. Um, dealing with parents, organizing schedules. You know, at El Toro, we, I always wanted to have, they didn't have five teams. They, they didn't have two freshman teams. So I wanted to have five teams. So mm-hmm. putting together the organization and then kind of, um, when I took over at El Toro, they actually didn't have a booster club. So um, they, that's kind of another story in itself, but we had to kind of build a booster club and go through all that. You just don't realize all the things that go on behind the scenes until you're actually in it. And I don't know if you can ever really be fully prepared. I mean, as you know, like you come into a job, it's like, oh my gosh, there's a lot to this. And it's, and it takes some time to get used to it and learn. I always thought it was actually going to get easier as the years went on, which yes, it does. But at the same time, you're usually adding new things. Like I started, oh, I want to run the tournament now. Oh, I want to do a summer camp. Right. And you start adding things to your plate and it gets even bigger and bigger and bigger. But that's, I think if you want to build a program, you want to do that and make it you know, kind of a, a life dream to fulfill. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't know if it gets easier, just, you know, what to expect, you know, that first year you're, you're going around blind, you know, and, and all, everything's new to you. And, and then as you, you know, 
get used to it. You know what's coming up. You know the meetings. You know the fundraising. You know the schedule. You know the coaches. You know all those things. And then, like you said, of course, you always want to build to it because if you're staying the same, you're not growing. And so then you build a feeder program, which you built, and you built the tournaments and the spring leagues and the summer leagues and the camps and all those things. And it's adding more, but at least you know what to expect. And at least you're the one adding it. So it's kind of by your terms versus when you first start, you're kind of on everyone else's terms, just trying to catch up. So you built a program. Talk about how you instilled, you know, your culture and your identity, not the X's and O's yet, but the culture and the identity of what it, what it meant to be an El Toro basketball player. We, we had a theme, and I continued this even at, at Santiago Canyon College, is um, be a class act. So mm-hmm. our, our program, our first program cover on the front of it, it says a class act. And so I always wanted to live by this and teach young men the same thing, like be a class act on the court, off the court. I think if you have players with high character that know right from wrong, that are going to be great teammates with each other, you're going to have success. It doesn't, I mean, yeah, you need to be a good basketball player, but um, I think you can manage the difficult times, which there's going to be difficult times. It's much easier to manage with people with high character. And if you have coaches on your staff that have the same philosophy you have an administration that supports you and, you know, like, let's, let's start an academic award, you know, have a, have a Dick Cobb class act award. Like let's, let's build all those things that you are going to develop these men into great people and not worry so much about the basketball. So I think our culture started out kind of like going back to Ocean View and, and Southern California college, that family environment. So I kind of wanted to build, that family environment also and do it as a class act, do things the right way. And I, we talked, I mean, back in the day, we could kind of control haircuts. You know, we couldn't have long hair. We couldn't have tattoos. We couldn't have um, beards. Um, We, you know, I, I wouldn't let them wear certain types of socks, you know, some, some nowadays things, you know, times have changed. So it's a little bit harder to do some of that. But I think if you're kind of instilling that discipline and, and the proper way to do things, we would have, conversations with the players about act like you've done it before. So if you make a three pointer, act like you've done it before. We don't need to see all the gyrations that go into it. Um, I was a big, big believer on, you know, like Barry Sanders back in the day when he scored a touchdown, handed the ball to the referee and because he'd done it before. So um, we just kind of built that into it. And yeah, we early on, there were some guys that fought it. They, they, I had some kids, try to flash some signs during a team picture at the beginning. It wasn't like gang signs, but they wanted to be funny. Mm-hmm. And um, we had to like discipline them. And so you just start early on, like say, Hey, this is how we're going to do things. If you don't like it, that's okay. It's, it doesn't, it's not for everybody. And yeah. if you like it, you're going to have a great experience. And so we were lucky enough over the years to have guys, players, and especially families like buy into it and really support it and had a lot of success. So it sounds like, more than the X's and O's, you were trying to teach the players character and class, uh, doing things the right way, playing as a team. And, and if you were able to instill those, then you believe that you would have and you had success on the floor. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Before I came back down here, I spent 11 years in the Central Valley. And to- Coach Tarkanian is a legend in that area for his days at Fresno State. And I never got to know him. Uh, but I shook his hand a couple times. I've met him, and I knew a lot of people who knew him, and I knew several of his players. And one of the things that I, I got from, uh, from him was that you know, he always seemed to look on the inside of a player uh, versus what the outside looked like. He was more concerned about what kind of person you were and versus what clothes you wore. And it seemed like he was always able to find one good thing about a person 
and use that and teach on that for as long as you possibly could until you could find more things. Um, you know, as the basketball culture changes and all these things go on, it, it definitely is different. I don't always understand every part of it, uh, but I've learned to, you know, find something good with every single kid that I coach and hold on to that for as long as I can. And I realized that, you know, the basketball universe certainly does not revolve around me. So now offensive and defensive philosophy, I think, you know, when I very first came to El Toro and I first met you, you were known as the uh, matchup defense, the matchup zone. And then so we would talk about it, but your quote was always, and I know you're going to beat you to it. It's not a zone, it's a man. So, and that I think is what separated you. I always think in high school basketball, you got to do something different from everybody. You can't have what everyone does. I mean, there's different things that you can keep, but you've got to do something a little bit different. You've know, you got to be that team that, you know, you have to take a little bit extra time to prepare for. And it seemed like your matchup zone is really what separated you uh, from your opponents when you, coached, uh, when you coached in high school and even now in college. But talk to me about your matchup zone and how that came about and maybe some of the principles of it and, and you know, what it's like. Yeah, so going back to the Ocean View days, Jim Harris – rarely ever played zone going into college um bill reynolds rarely ever played zone um going so going into my coaching career i rarely ever played zone and i that's why i never call it a zone but uh, so my first few years probably my first probably like eight years or whatever we were playing man he would play zone you know matchup but it like as far as matchups like if a team couldn't shoot outside very well kind of you know adjust to a zone but mostly played man then um, we had a player named David Foster come into our program. So mm-hmm. David Foster ended up being seven feet two as a senior. Mm-hmm. Um, he was on varsity for his junior and senior year. So going into his junior year, we thought, you know what? I'm not going to have David Foster out there playing man-to-man on a kid that's, you know, six four and, you know, moves around a little bit more. And I'd like to have him by the basket because we're going to play teams. We're going to try to draw him away. So, um, I didn't want to play like a traditional zone because I had some good athletes around him. So I thought, you know what? Um, I've heard of matchup zones. Um, I remember watching a video about some sort of matchup zone and I just created kind of my own rules and came up with it myself. I've always been one in the basketball world, like X's nose. I watch videos. I watch a bunch of games, but I always, I never take it word for word. I don't know if anybody really does. You kind of take a piece from here, a piece from there, and you kind of put it all together. So we, came, we created this matchup zone that had a lot of band principles. So when people said, oh, you guys play a zone, I'd always correct them and say, no, we play a matchup. Because at all times, if the matchup was working right, you are guarding a man. You're never guarding a zone. And that's the difference. That, you know, a zone defense, you have a certain zone. So we would have rules that, depending on the player and depending on where he cut from, you would actually follow him through. So you might, be, you might start that defensive possession on the left side wing, and that guy cut through along the baseline to the right side, and he was one of the shooters, you actually went with him. And then you became the right side forward. So mm-hmm. um, that principle of understanding that it's a man-to-man and all the philosophies of man-to-man stay true, whether, you know, that's why we didn't call it a zone. That's just something where the matchup developed. And we were really good defensively. A lot of it obviously was dated, but we could put pressure on the ball. And if the guys got by us, we had a seven-footer behind us. And David was – Obviously, he could block shots, and he was kind of the Bill Russell where he could block his shot and get his own rebound, you know, yeah. get that defensive board. He wasn't blocking shots to be demonstrative or to send it out of bounds. He was blocking the shot to control the ball and then, you know, get it and outlet it and kind of create our offense. But that's really where the matchup came from. And then what's funny is, so when David graduated, I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to playing man. 
And um, especially because we didn't have anybody over 6'3", I think. So we're going to go play man. So we play man, the, I think like in the, you know, you have summer games and fall games and everything. And we weren't very good. So we had a kid named Damon Starring, who actually went on to play at UCI, playing overseas. Um, he was a really good athlete, about 6'3". And I thought, okay, let's, let's play the matchup, but let's have Damon play the middle. But instead of playing behind post players, he would front post players. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to be the, the stopper as far as blocking shots, but he's going to be, you know, kind of deterring the pass from getting inside. And so we started doing that, and we were really successful. That group, I think they really overachieved, but they were really good defensively. And so that's over the next probably 10 years or so, it, it just kind of became something that we did. And, and I, I think it's really valuable, like you mentioned, at the high school level doing something different. Mm-hmm. You have a Wednesday-Friday game, and you're playing us on a Friday. You're probably not preparing till Thursday. So now you've got to prepare your zone stuff on Thursday to get ready for us. You know, and that's and you're talking about the high school level. That's that's not easy to do. And I think an that, advantage doing that, that. Yeah, it definitely helped us. What about your offensive philosophy? Where did that come from? Was it what did you take bits and pieces from what you had with your college coaches or from what you learned in, at the high school at Santa Margarita? How, how did you develop your philosophy offensively? Mostly with the, the college experience being at Southern California College. Um, the tempo, I think, is really important. I think the more you can fast break, the more you can get out of possessions and, you know, not let teams get set defensively. So um, I've been really big on, obviously, tempo. But also at the same time, you have to, it, especially at the high school level, it's determined by your personnel. So I've never been one to say, hey, we're going to play three out, two in, or four out, one in, or five out. Because if I... I have an Andre Murillo, who's a stud post player, a David Foster, who's a great post player. I'm not going to go five out. So we would go more four out, one in. Um, if I had two post players, we had a kid named Jared Kaiser that played with, um, I think, with David a year. And they, they ran high-low stuff really well. So I always took – I thought the, the, one of the fun things about high school coaching is when the season ends and it's the springtime and you get your new varsity guys, you have the spring, summer, and fall to figure it out. Yeah. And so I would take the spring, summer, and fall to figure it out. Um, it's a little bit different at the college level because you don't have that. You don't play those games. So you got to figure it out in a month, basically, before you play. So it's a little bit more challenging. Um, but I was always a big believer in having multiple threats on the court. So I thought our best teams were when we had um, five guys that could all shoot and, um, you know, share the ball. I'm, I'm big on team basketball. I think if you look back, at the El Toro days, like leading scores probably probably were in the 15, 16 points, somewhere, somewhere in there. They weren't averaging 25 points. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I think it's, I think it's easy to game plan when you have one guy to guard and it's hard to game plan when you have, you know, multiple guys. And that's, I think sharing the ball is, is really important. And then the last thing I would say, I don't know if this is as much, it is offensively, but um, developing shooters. So I always, the people that ask me questions about coaching, they always ask me about the matchup and how come you always have good shooters? Cause we've been fortunate at the college level to have good shooters, but we were fortunate at El Toro to have a lot of good shooters. And really I've never been one to change a guy's shot unless it's completely off, you know, awkward and not very good. But what I really believe in is confidence. And um, I've, I think I've done a pretty good job of instilling confidence in players. And I think if you are a confident basketball player, you are going to be a pretty good shooter. And, um, you know, if I, I didn't really play for too many coaches like that, but I've seen a lot of coaches where if a kid makes a mistake, that, that coach is yanking that guy right out of the game. 
And so I think if you ask my players from the past, they would say he lets us play through our mistakes. And so when you let players play through their mistakes and get in their rhythm, they're going to be pretty confident. And then their shooting that they prove in the practice is going to really show. So, you know, is it, do you become confident because you're a good shooter or do you become a good shooter because you're confident? You know, it's one of those, you know, what comes first. But I think if you just have that environment where, Hey, you missed a shot. It doesn't matter. You shoot the next one that's going in and you have that and you instill that in your players. They, they become pretty good shooters. So besides working, obviously we, we shoot a lot in practice, but I think the confidence part um, goes a long ways. So what I'm hearing is about building shooters, a lot of, a lot of reps, correct. Mm-hmm. And shooting in practice. You'd be, maybe you wouldn't, but our listeners might be surprised how many coaches don't do a lot of shooting at practice and it's a lot more team oriented and running their offense, their defense, their plays. Uh, you know, built-in shooting in a practice, I think, is is huge, especially for developing high school kids. Maybe in college, you could say, look, it, this is college. You know, the gym's open. You get in here on your own and shoot for two hours. But in high school, it's not quite like that. Um, and so you develop shooters through repetition, practicing it, and you didn't really tinker with guys' shots unless they were absolutely broken. So you, you, and you gave them confidence, and you just, you know, you built that confidence at practice, and then they do it in the game, and then their confidence builds uh, from that. Is that what I'm hearing? Definitely. And then obviously just your offensive, you know, the X and O part, like your spacing on the floor. So you got to put guys in the right spot. I think you have to teach a lot of off ball movement rather than, you know, you got to be able to come off the screens, but when you don't have the ball, which is a lot of the time, you know, you don't realize that kids don't realize that they're not going to have the ball, you know, on offense, only one guy has the ball. There's four other guys and what you do to get yourself ready to shoot and prep yourself to, to be able to knock down the shots. So um, some of that comes into play as well. You talked a little bit about the spring and summer, and that's when you get to know your new team and get to develop your new team. Talk to me about your philosophy on building individual players in the offseason as well as building the team concepts. Uh, So I've always been a believer that you need to play pickup games. And I don't know if a lot of people would agree with me. I think like in a and you could probably talk to some of the El Toro kids that had me back in the day, uh, the springtime, very rarely did I coach them. I mean, I just got done from summer, beginning of summer, all the way through February or March, yeah. talking to them, coaching them, even the lower level guys, you know, because I was involved um, with all the levels. But when, when the springtime came around, I think the guys really enjoyed just going for 45 minutes to an hour of playing pickup games. And I really believe you develop you, – the ball is in your hands a lot more. You have freedom to play. You, have, you know, you develop – Oh, what do I do if I go left on this guy? Or what do I do when I go right? I think you can develop as a player, even playing pickup games. Now, there are some bad habits that can happen, and there probably isn't the same type of defense. So you try to encourage that as you coach them during the, you know, during that springtime when they're playing their pickup games. But um, teaching them how to play three on three, you know, it's kind of like old man basketball. Yeah. Um, a lot of kids, if you if you put three on three out there right now with the freshman. And they, they're up at the top and they pick, make a pass to the wing, I bet you they stand. Because they just don't know. They don't know any better. They've been watching highlight videotapes and they've been working out with their trainer and they're waiting for that one guy to, to go one-on-one and make a move. Um, and so I was always big on pass and cut, pass and cut, pass and cut, pass and go screen, pass and go screen. Dave Shoemaker, my longtime assistant, would sit down there with the, the lower-level guys and he would, like, require five passes before, you know, you could shoot those types of things. But – I think um, developing them in the offseason, letting them play some pickup games is really important. Now, at the same time, you have to have your strength and conditioning program. So we always had, like Tom McKenna, one of my assistants, current assistant as well at, at Santiago Canyon, 
um, is really big on, on strength and conditioning stuff. So he would always implement a plan for that. So you can build their bodies and then also let them have some free play. So it's kind of a, a fun time and then a, you know, get after work time as well. And then as the spring kind of get, got closer to the summer, then you start having your spring practices at night when you can, you know, start doing all that and start developing, you know, what is going to be your offensive game plan for the season. So you would have a, you would have a mix. So you would start the spring with a lot more pickup and conditioning and, and weights. And then as you get more into the spring and the summer, then it's a little bit less pickup and a little bit more team oriented things. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes, definitely. And in the summer we do like part of the summer practice will be team, but then there'll be a lot of individual stuff. I always thought spring and summer was more individual development. Um, as you get closer to the fall and I mean, and you play so many games, I love, I mean, I really enjoy playing the games in the summer because that's when you're having your team practice. So during practice, you can go over what you want to go over, but you can do individual work and work a lot on the shooting and stuff. And then you play the games and that's your team practice and you get experiment with lineups and all that kind of stuff. And then as the fall gets, you know, gets going, you, you really concentrate on the team and making sure you know your set plays and you should have your philosophies all, all down by then. In, in the, the one of the tough things about working on individual stuff is you don't see the payback or the payout right away with the players. So you do the dribbling drills, the shooting drills, the passing drills, and and that type of individual stuff. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just mean I, I you know, did those dribbling stuff and now I'm going to go out and be a point guard. How long do you think, or how long in your experience does it take for that individual development to catch up to what they do on the floor as they develop as players? That's a tough one. Um, I think every player is a little bit different. Um, I always saw and thought we would have some kids that were a junior on the varsity that was more like a role player. In fact, I'll, I'll mention Donovan Jackson, who was my mm-hmm. assistant. I coached him and he's been your assistant as well. Donovan was a junior on the varsity and he was good. He was like our sixth, seventh man, started some games and he was good. Mm-hmm. Um, but then his senior year, all of a sudden he really blossomed. And some of that is, okay, it's my time. But some of it is all the work that he put in since he was young, freshman, sophomore, junior year. Now he put it in. Now he gets to display it. He gets that opportunity. And then you kind of blossom. We had a kid named Tyler Gottstein that I never thought would be that good of a player. And then his senior year, my goodness, he took, took off and was, was a stud. Like he could score at will. And um, So we had several. I and mean, a kid named Jordan Faison, who you're familiar with as well. Jordan was, I mean, I almost cut him as a sophomore because he was kind of the lazy kid that, didn't really want to work that hard. And then all of a sudden JV team, I actually played him on the JV team as a junior because he wouldn't have played that much on the varsity. That's a whole philosophy thing. And is it better to play on the JVs and start or be a reserve on the varsity? So we had a starting center on the varsity that was pretty good as a senior. So I talked to Jordan about playing, Hey, your JV year, you're going to be a stud on the JV as, as a junior. And he really, really developed because he got that opportunity. Yeah. And then his varsity year, he was phenomenal and went on to Cal Poly Pomona was a, was a great player there and playing overseas. So I think everybody's development is a little bit different and it's kind of a culmination of all the work you put in from really from day one. It sounds like, you know, when we know the development takes time, it sounds like, you know, when you, you talk about placing players and doing different things with players, you have to convince them that, you know, all this hard work is going to pay off because, you know, a kid like uh, Jordan Faison and I tell Jordan every time I see him, I say, you're welcome in the gym. Every single day, except for the alumni game. That's the only day I don't want to see you. Other than that, you're welcome. Um, but, uh, you know, you have to convince a kid that, you know, that, that that work pays off because a guy like Jordan would say, I'm a junior. I'm maybe one of the better athletes in the program, and I'm playing on the JV team. I'm out of here. 
But instead, you were able to tell him, hey, look, you're going to get a chance. And that chance came. And if he had quit that junior year, who knows? He never would be playing professional basketball. I mean, the chances are slimmer, that's for sure. How do you convince players, you know, get into their psyche and get into them and, and explain to them and tell, while telling them the truth that, you know, if you do these things, good things are going to happen? Right. I think it's just part of the relationship you have with players. Once when you first meet them and develop them through their freshman, sophomore, JV year, and they know, I mean, we have built a great culture in El Toro and, and kids wanted to come to El Toro and they wanted to play basketball. They very rarely, and I can't even think of any, but they, that left, El, that was an El Toro kid that left to go play somewhere else because kind of they knew we were going to be pretty good. We were going to be successful. We were doing things the right way. You know, we're that class act on and off the court. So I think they wanted to be part of it. So even if they're told, hey, you know what? And it, I mean, it is hard. Like you, you tell someone, hey, I'd rather you be a sophomore on the sophomore team than be, you know, a, a, a JV reserve. Um, and, and I think they know the history of the program and kind of buy into it. So that's just something that's kind of instilled. We had um, a kid named Sean Harmon who played at Westmont, four-year starter at Westmont, like phenomenal player, great kid. And his freshman year, there was three really good freshmen, and we put two of them up on the JV team. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him about, hey, I want you to stay on the freshman team because you're going to be a scorer, and you need those reps to be a scorer. Um, so he played on the freshman team, and he probably averaged 20, 25 points a game. And Mike Herbold, who we coached with you as well, mm-hmm. um, really developed him. And, and it became – and then his sophomore year, he was on the varsity. And that was kind of one of the things I told Sean also. I go – even though like Jake and George are up on the JVs as, as freshmen, their next year they'll be on varsity as sophomores, but you're going to be on the freshman in your next year. You will also be on varsity as long as you've developed. And, and I really believe, you know, he would be able to develop. And sure enough, he became a, a great player for an all CIF player for us. And heck, he was, I think if you talk to John Moore at Westmont, he'd say he's one of his favorite players of all time. And Sean was just that because he bought into the program. And I think that's part of it. You've mentioned a lot of really good players uh, from El Toro that you've coached. Give me a, uh, I think our listeners will like to hear this. Give me a rundown. I won't say an all-time starting five, but give me your best players that you've coached. It doesn't have to be five, but I don't want it to be 10 or 15. I want this to be, you know, I want us to, you know, have this down. Give me a list of your best players that you coached at El Toro. Yeah, this is, it's, I do get asked this question from, from time to time, and I, and I always struggle with it because you never Now want- we have you on audio. So now we're, you know, this is going to live forever. I uh, actually, Mark Stein, who works for the New York Times, uh, mm-hmm. worked for the NBA ESPN. He's an El Toro graduate, so mm-hmm. I stayed in touch with him. And he asked me that a few years ago. Yes, great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, um, Kelvin Kim always sticks out in the point guard world because Kelvin was a, he was a little guy also at the beginning. But boy, I remember watching him play in like sixth or seventh grade as part of our theater team. And he, he saw the court as a seventh grade. And I thought, this guy's going to be special. So um, he played freshman. Yeah, he might have played JV as a freshman, JV or freshman, but he played three years of varsity and had a great career. Went to UCLA as a preferred walk-on, um, had a great experience there. But even then, he was like, well, I want to play. Like, he was obviously a really good student going to UCLA. So he wanted to play. So then he actually ended up transferring to UC San Diego and had a great career, like all-league player and all that. Like, he did really well. Um, played a little bit in Korea uh, for their national team after, wow. like, after college. Um, I mentioned Sean Harmon. He was obviously a, a really good player at Westmont. Play. Just he was, Sean's the type of kid that he could score two points and have a smile on his face, and he could score 21 points and have a smile on his face. He just wanted the team to win. He was, he was phenomenal. Um, a kid named Chris Parrish pops into my mind. He was one of my first freshmen to play varsity 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wasn't sure if that was going to happen, but it, it happened about five games in because I think he was playing JVs and he was just lighting up. He's maybe one of our, I mean, if not the best shooter, one of the best shooters we've ever had. Um, he could stroke it from anywhere, but he was, he was one of those guys. He also could really battle defensively. Um, I mentioned David, I mentioned Andre. Those are kind of the bigger guys that I think mm-hmm. of. Andre just bleeds blue and gold. Like he had some battles with some teachers and administrators, but when it came to basketball, he bought in and he, he did anything for us. He was, he was great. And he played overseas, played at Concordia and Biola. David Foster got a full ride to Utah. Um, which is interesting because in my 21 years Del Toro, I think I had two Division One basketball players. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an interesting fact. But David went to UC. Um, David went to Utah, and then Damon Starring, who I mentioned, went to UCI. A um, couple other guys, real quick. Um, Patrick Carney, who's mm-hmm. playing professionally in Germany, had probably a 15-year career over in Germany. Yeah. Played at Chapman College. He was one of our early guys that was really good. Um, a kid named George Waku who played at UC San Diego also. Um, he probably comes back to the gym from time to time. And then the last guy, I I'll kind of hopefully I'm not missing too many guys, but um, we had a kid named Matt Green that went into the Naval Academy, but I think he probably holds the record. He shot like 67% from the floor, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just layups. Like he could make mid-range stuff. He wasn't really a three-point shooter, but he was kind of a backbone to that that team that had um, – uh, well, I actually had Ken Tanaka who – runs Tanaka Farms now in Irvine, which is kind of cool. Um, he was the point guard. We had a kid named Oshkan Nazari. Nazari, excuse me. Um, gosh, if you wanted a guy that was tough, Oshkan was the guy. In fact, our first um, CIF championship, the semifinals, were playing at Westlake High School, or Thousand Oaks, but it was at like Westlake High School at a neutral site. And um, game goes into overtime. Oshkan just clutched down the stretch. He's 10 for 10 from the free throw line in the last like five minutes of the game in overtime and basically sealed the deal for us to be able to go on to the CIF final. So um, those are kind of some of the guys that just kind of ring a bell Um, to me. I apologize for all the guys that I missed. We had some pretty good players back in the day. Yeah. Um, Okay. So you finished with your high school coaching, at least for the time being, and you take the job at Santiago Canyon community college. Um, explain to, you know, a lot of coaches who've never coached in college or don't know a whole lot about that, uh, about that level, what the interview process was like and what it was like going from a high school coach to interview and go to college. All right. So I'll, I'll tell you my story for moving on. Um, I really was never thinking I was going to leave El Toro. I enjoyed my time at El Toro. I thought it was a great job. I was just one of those guys that, you know, this is what I like to do. I also, if you remember back when I said I didn't really enjoy the recruiting too much at, when I was a 25-year-old or 27-year-old, um, so I never really pursued a college position. Um, so anyways, I get a phone call or an email from one of their, not the athletic director, but head of their kinesiology department at Santiago Canyon College, and um, he says, hey, we're going to have this basketball class in the evenings, and um, we were wondering if you'd be interested. Do you have your master's? because you have to have your master's to teach at the collegiate level. And um, I said, yeah. And he goes, it's just Tuesday, Thursday nights for like an hour and a half. We just were looking for some local coaches to be able to come down and coach, you know, teach the class with the possibility and the premise that we may start up a program here. We've never had a basketball program, but we have this brand new gym. Um, Would you be interested? And I thought, you know what, springtime, Tuesday, Thursday nights, let's do it. I can manage it. Thought it'd be fun. So I did that for a year. Um, and then at the end, they, they said, you know what, we're going to 
we're going to open up the job. We're going to actually start a men's basketball. They just started men's and women's volleyball and they go, we're now going to start uh, men's basketball. So here's the interview process. And so you basically for the interview process, you have to do a, you know, you go through the full on interview, but you do a 10 minute presentation on how you would support the community and not necessarily fundraising, but community, like how you involve the community and do camps and things like that. And then another 10 minutes on the um, basketball part. So it's like 10 minutes of how you recruit and how you involve the community. And then 10 minutes on a display of your basketball, you know, whatever you want, offense, defense, whatever like that. Um, so I went through that process. Um, I heard a bunch of people in the JC jobs, kind of a, kind of a hidden gem and something that's highly, um, highly wanted by, by coaches. And uh, so there were quite a few people that interviewed, I guess. Um, fortunately, I was able to get the job. I think it was nice that they kind of got to know me because I was teaching that activity class and they knew about my success at El Toro. So um, actually, even before, here's, here's kind of one of the backstories is when I first start hearing about SCC and Santiago Canyon College, I don't even think of SCC as Santiago Canyon College. Like mm-hmm. I just hear Santiago Canyon College. So I don't relate it back to the Southern California College SCC. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the head of the department says, oh, why don't you come down to the college and uh, meet us and you can see the gym and we can talk and see if this is something for you. And I said, okay, great. So I'm thinking Santiago Canyon College. I'm thinking they're red for some reason. I, I don't, I, maybe because of Santa Ana College being red. So our colors at Southern California College were blue and gold. And so mm-hmm. I'm thinking Santiago Canyon College is going to be red and I'm not really thinking anything, but I I am when I'm driving over there, I actually say a little prayer that I would love to get a sign that says, hey, maybe this is a good opportunity. Like, I, you know, you say a little prayer from time to time that you, you mm-hmm. hope you see some sign, which is probably not the right thing to do, but you still kind of hope you mm-hmm. see something. And uh, so sure enough, I, I get there. I meet him at the top of the stairs. We walk down, we go into the gym. And what I see on the bleachers and blue and gold riding is SCC. I'm just like, I mean, I get chills to this day thinking, oh my gosh, like Southern California College, Santiago Canyon College, blue and gold, like that never rang a bell to me when I first started thinking about that job. Um, so I, I don't know if I can get a clearer sign than that. And I don't, you know, it's, who knows if it's a divine intervention or not, but um, I like to share that story because sometimes things work out for certain reasons. Um, but anyways, I went through the interview process and it all worked out and, and enjoying it a lot. Um there's a lot of coaches, uh, at least in California on the West Coast, who have JC ties, um, either as a player or as a coach. Um, a lot of roads go through JC for basketball guys. And so I talked to a lot of basketball, my, my friends, and, and they, they all ask, you know, do you know Coach Dixon or how's Coach Dixon? And, you know, and, and they see your success and they say, you know, how, how does he do it? Like, how, how, how is he doing this? And I, I tell them a story about you and I, and we play basketball every Sunday morning. And a lot of times we'll talk about your team. And there was a player on your team, a really good player, who was struggling in the classroom. And one of the coaches that or one of the guys we were playing with is also a coach said, hey, you know, you just got to grease the wheels. You got to get those grades up. Just, you know, make sure he passes, you know. And, and I remember you saying, you're, you know what, it doesn't mean that much to me. I'm not going to cheat. And this was, is a very good player. I won't say his name, but it's a very good player. And I thought to myself, I said, you know, that, that's, that in my universe, in my kingdom, you know, that those are the type of guys who succeed, not the other guys who, you know, do things that you shouldn't do. And so, you know, I tell people that story and then they're floored because they know how a lot of junior college programs go as, as you do. And, and to know that someone's doing these things the right way and still having success, you know, I think is, is a surprise to a lot of people. 
Um, how did you, how have you in the short time that you've been as SEC built that program on the same principles that you've had throughout your career? Uh, I think it still goes back to trying to have guys with high character and players that enjoy playing with each other and together, um, sharing the ball. Um, there's just so many elements that go into it when you start building a program, even from the El Toro days to whatever, you kind of put all your personality traits and all your beliefs into the program. And when you have guys that buy in, I just think when you have five guys that like each other and at that level, they're going to be pretty good. I mean, you're, you're not dealing, you're dealing with all league players. Even if everybody in the conference has all league players, you know, I think if you get the five guys that play the best together, you're going to be more successful than the five individuals. So I think we were lucky to have a couple of guys right off the bat and Rocket Henderson and Antoine Jenkins and AJ Garrity that could really, really play the game, but also believed in the team concept. Mm. And I think me instilling that, Hey, this isn't going to be, me roll out the balls. And it's a little bit different at the JC level um, because you do allow for some more individualism, I guess. Yeah. You can still incorporate your concepts and what your offensive philosophy is. So we've just been able to kind of incorporate, say, hey, you got to get the job done in the classroom. And we've had some hiccups down, you know, even in, in the classroom and stuff, but you're, you're constantly talking to them and making sure that they're getting all the right help and doing all the right stuff for, to get to class and take care of their academics and then obviously behaving off the court. So um, we still have that class act. I just, I don't believe in getting technical fouls. I don't believe in, you know, doing weird things on the court. I mean, it's a little more loose at the JC level with the discipline than it is at the high school level, just because you're dealing with men. Adults. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to change what a 22 year old wants to do or how he behaves, but I can influence him to behave a certain way. And if he's not going to behave, you know, if it's nothing outside the realm of being a class act and it's just, oh, I want to wear black socks instead of white socks, you know, that's fine. I don't care if you, you know, some guys, the tattoo is more relevant now, which it's, that's not, that doesn't mean just because you have a tattoo doesn't mean you're not a class act. So I've changed that type of philosophy at the college level where it's, you know, you're a little more lenient and not as strict with some of that, but you kind of develop that, hey, this is how we do things the right way and you're going to seek success. Um, honesty, treating people the right way, playing together, respecting the game, those things uh, won't change no matter what time period it is. It sounds like those are the type of fundamentals that you're continuing to teach the guys. And if they have tattoos or different things, you know, it, you, you, you take them as who they are. And, and it doesn't mean they're bad or can't uphold those things, or maybe even better if they can uphold them than the other kids could have uh, or players could have. Do you find that you, you know, teach the kids, I, should, I see kids because I'm a high school coach, teach the men differently or coach the men differently than you coached at El Toro? Like, are there certain things that you got away with at El Toro that you can't do here or vice versa? How did you have to change your teaching philosophy now with 22-year-olds and 19-year-olds versus 14-year-olds? Yeah, there's not a lot that, that changes when it comes to like the X's and O's. I would say, you know, I might listen a little bit more to an input and they might be more willing to give input. For instance, like A.J. Garrity, who's a very accomplished basketball player and very experienced, he might come up to me, and if he does it at the right time, like he's not going to come up to me in the middle of a game or a practice or whatever, but he might say, hey, coach, what do you think about this? Or, hey, coach, there have been several times, and if you ask my college guys, like at a timeout, we'll come back into the huddle and I'll go, okay, are you guys comfortable playing man right now or comfortable playing zone? Like, what do you like? And I look to my leaders, and, and that's because I've developed a trust with them and a relationship with them to know that, hey, they're out there on the court and they feel good about it. And Heck, even if I disagree, if I think I want to play the matchup and they go, oh, let's play some man here, I usually go with them because they're going to believe in it because they came up with it. 
Yeah. But I instill a little bit more of that. I don't think I did too much of that at El Toro. Um, and then I think the other thing, just basketball-wise, like we had a kid, Rocket Henderson, our first year, that could really go one-on-one. Like he could, if you isolate him on the wing, he, he could, I mean, he was 6'5", could jump out of the gym, could elevate, and, you know, he averaged, you know, 25 and 27 points a game, I think. Um, so I, I developed some offensive sets to get him in there. And I tried to do it in a way where I'm not saying, oh, let's just give Rocket the ball and clear out. But you run a play, and it just ends up with him with the ball in the right situation. So um, we did that a lot with Antoine with some ball screens. So you'd kind of incorporate some of that maybe a little bit more at the college level because you trust them to be able to do certain things that maybe a high school kid could not do. Um, I've always said that I think the hardest working coaches in basketball are junior college coaches um, because – you do, you know, there's difference from high school. And obviously you and I know high school well, and you know, junior college well as well. Um, you know, there's differences in it, but I think the biggest thing is, is the recruiting part because you run a program year round and you have springtime and you have summer stuff. It's not games where you're able to play official games, but you're still in the gym every day with them. Um, but the difference is when, when you're not playing on a Tuesday night, you're at a high school gym watching a team. And when you're not practicing in the summer, you're at an AAU tournament watching a player. And in order to get in with a player, it's not just watching the player. You got to get in with him. You got to get in with his parents. You have to get in with his coaches. I mean, that takes a lot of time, not to mention that you probably wash the uniforms on the road and you probably drive the buses or the vans and you fill up those and you're in charge of the food. You do all that stuff. Talk about the differences work-wise from junior college to high school or high school, junior college, and then tell me about what you look for in your recruits when you go out recruiting. Um, I would actually say a high school coach might work harder if it's the high school coach that's doing all the scouting. Now it's a little bit different with huddle and some of the video things. I would actually say back in the day before that, I would go and watch mission Viejo five times in the, in the, you know, December tournament time, video them, bring them home, splice up the video so I could show it to the guys and, you know, beside, and then there was the fundraising, you know, then yes, you have your summers and your springs and your summer tournaments. Um, but I kept, I mean, a lot of that I brought on myself because I did all that. Sure. Um, at the college level, you're just, just, I would say about as busy, but it's a different focus because it's more about the recruiting than it is about fundraising at the college level. I don't have to worry about the fundraising. I don't have to worry about parents, which is a nice aspect We you get, you know, obviously in the high school level, you have some parents that are a little overbearing and want their kids to be superstars and aren't quite superstars yet. So there's some of those struggles um, at the high school level. Um, at the college level, the administration, you don't have to do as much paperwork and financial stuff. You, you kind of just get a coach, which is kind of the thing that I'm really enjoying right now. Um, so there are some differences, but I would not say a JC coach works harder than a high school coach. I mean, there might be some high school coaches that only work during the eight month season. Um, but I would say most high school coaches work just as hard as the JCs or even other coaches. As far as recruiting, um, it is a 24 seven job. Like you're constantly thinking, Oh, where's the next guy? Who can I get? Um, it's not quite at the, the four year level because we can pretty much only stay in our areas. We have like a district around us and then all the adjoining districts pretty much within the state, but we're not, they have to contact us first. If it's out of state, they also have to contact us first. So you don't get too many of those, but I do get emails. I probably get five emails a day from a player, from different players that say, oh, I want to play for you, and here's my highlight video. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of time watching these seven-minute highlight videos, which everybody looks really good <laughs> on those highlight videos. So you have to kind of siphon through some of that. Um, but, I mean, I do. I go out and watch AAU games. I watch high school games, get to know the coaches. It's a lot of more about networking because you're going to hear 
at our level, I think to be successful, you're not going to just do it with all high school graduates. You're going to do it with the 20, 21, 22 year old bounce backs. So that's just connections. Cause you don't, I think one of the frustrating things with our level is you don't know who your team's going to be right now. You know, like I think you, University of North Carolina, they know their squad right now going into, well, maybe not if he's going pro or something, but they have a pretty good idea. For us, we don't really know exactly till the first day of school. But um, looking for kids like what we're looking for, once again, I think you can tell when you start talking to kids and coaches, you can kind of tell about their character. And, you know, obviously you need to develop you need to develop a good player and recruit a good player, but you also want him to be a good kid. So I actually watch some of their demeanor on the court and off the court. Like, do they support their teammates? Do they come off and how do they handle the coaching all that kind of stuff? So um, I've turned down a few that said that, that thought they were good enough. Um, but for the most part, I think kids are generally good and will buy into the, your philosophy. Well, especially when you win as many games as you guys do. It's a lot easier to buy in there. It makes things much better, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, two more things, and then I'll let you go. First, uh, professional development for yourself. Uh, how are you developing as a coach? Uh, websites, videos, uh, clinics, things like that, how, books. What, what do you do to develop professionally? Yeah, I mean, I've always been one to go to coaching clinics and watch some things. You know, Las Vegas always has that uh, coaching clinic every year. Um, mm-hmm. I don't go quite as much as I used to, but in my high school days, I went to that almost every year. Um, I remember one of my first clinics I went to was in um, Lake Ta- South Lake Tahoe, which probably Tom Or Orlick was at. Um, yeah, we used to go, I actually stayed at his house one time when I was a player, so we used to do that. If you remember, they switched houses for a little while. But um, I went to the U uh, North Carolina. Their staff, Dean Smith, Roy Williams, and Eddie Fogler, were all on the staff at UNC, and I went to that clinic. Um, I actually went there with Jim Harris um, and Roger Holmes, but. That was kind of the first one where I was like, okay, I got to watch some of these because you get, you get to know things. Last summer, I went to a clinic at St. Margaret's High School hosted by a guy named uh, Mark Cassio, who's a high school coach in Louisiana. Not too many people probably even know him or whatever, but he runs a motion dribble drive mix. Hybrid, of yeah. yeah, like a hybrid type of a thing. Um, and, you know, you go and you, you listen and you're not going to buy completely into it, but he's going to tell you what he does, which is nice and you know, I picked up one thing from them and I'm like, okay, I can incorporate that because that's pretty cool. And you put it in. And so that's kind of what you do. Um, I don't, I don't read a lot of books on basketball, like X's and O's. What I, what I actually do, and my wife can attest to this, I'll be watching a game and I'll see like the Spurs run a play or the Heat or somebody runs a play and I'm like, Ooh, I like that. Or, oh, I, and I'll, I have an app on my phone, which is, it's a basketball app, but it's just called whiteboard. And it's a basketball court and you can just like draw the play right there and you can send it yourself as an email. So I keep this list of a little file of all these emails that I get from myself basically that are different plays and kind of, so I do a lot of that where I just watch the game, um, try to teach myself some things. And then I'll, I'll, I used to get some DVDs. In fact, I think I borrowed a DVD from you one time about the dribble drive. So watching those things, you just kind of pick up a few things that can, you know, can help you out in the long run and kind of help develop your offensive philosophy, defensive philosophy, that kind of stuff. Last thing here, advice for young coaches, Um, coaches wanting to get into your game as a junior college coach or even a high school coach. What's some advice that you can give our listeners? Uh, Well, do it the right way. If you can, if you can build your program the right way, then the highs will be high and the lows won't be as low. And you're going to have some lows. You're going to have some highs. You're going to have some struggles, but if you're doing it with the right players and the right staff, um, Get, I will kind of going back a little bit. Um, 
one of the things I'm most proud of my El Toro times is how many assistant coaches I got that were former players. Mm-hmm. I, I think that says a lot about the program that we developed. I mean, Tom McKenna, who's been my assistant forever, I, I coached at Santa Margarita High School. You know, I think the only one, the only main one that I didn't coach was Dave Shoemaker. And that just, you know, worked out through a friendship. Almost every other coach I've ever had has been a former player of mine. So that's, that's something to be said. So I think if, if you can develop a program that has that family environment, um, develop that, mid, that, that the good character of the guys, I think that's important. Um, that would go a long way. Um, I think kind of having your philosophy, uh, I'll kind of tell you this thing that I came up with for Santiago Canyon College was we call them the five golden rules. So the five golden rules for our program is number one, outwork your opponent. Number two, be a great teammate. Number three, show respect to all. Number four, master the details. And five, and maybe the most important thing just in life is have grit. And mm-hmm. I think that, that goes back to my 411 freshman days when a freshman told me that I, I would never be able to dunk a basketball. Well, luckily for me, I worked hard at it. And by the time I was a senior, I was able to dunk a basketball. And I think that grit that I've been able to develop or that maybe all the situations that happened to me where I was told I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that. I was able to kind of develop that grit and kind of prove that if you really want to do something the right way, have some grit and work through it. Even if it's not, you know, if you're, you're told one thing and you can really work hard the right way, you can make it happen. Uh, Coach, how can our listeners reach you if they want to reach out to you for uh, various reasons? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, probably through email. So I guess my college email would be Dixon, D-I-X-O-N underscore Todd, T-O-D-D, at S-C college. So S-C-C-O-L-L-E-G-E dot E-D-U. So. Very good. Well, coach, that's it. Um, I appreciate you being here. We will be following the uh, SCC uh, junior college guys and following you are uh, all big fans here. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I appreciate you having me. A lot of fun. Well, that does it for the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at nicksonato at ymail.com. See you next time. Hey, are you a musician or someone with a small business and want to get more attention to your business and to your music? How about you create an ad with the MTNV Sports Podcast? By doing that, all you have to do is DM me, Nora Natish, at Nora, N-O-R-A, underscore Natish, N-A-T-I-S-H, on Instagram or Twitter. And I will help you be able to get your song on our Song of the Week list and your ad for your business on MTNV Sports Podcast episodes. Hit me up if you want that hookup.